Have you ever created the terms and conditions in terms of your obedience to the Lord? Have you ever, have you ever like been like anything, Lord, except for that? Like I'll go as far, except I just won't go that far. Like have you ever, have you ever just, just had those moments of, of like boldness and surrender only to find like, hey, I didn't really mean like everything, you know? And so control begins to manifest in our life when we start to create the terms and conditions, you know, related to our obedience to Jesus. I, I just want to tell you that we have to come to this place where our joy and our peace doesn't rise and fall based on what does or does not happen to us. We have to come to that place as followers of Jesus where your joy, your peace, you know, like, like as, a, as a Jesus follower, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't fluctuate. It doesn't, it doesn't move up or down based on what happens to you or based on what doesn't happen to you in your life. There is this steadiness. There is this calmness. There is this ability to step into the, 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 the cycle of anxiety in this world and be a non-anxious presence so that you can disrupt it. And, and uh, man, like, and just, and just uh, point people to like, like the true way of life. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, so good to, to see you. So good to be back with you this week. Uh, my family and I, last Sunday, we were in Kearney, Nebraska with my brother and his family. We were uh, just, just enjoying the weekend with them, kind of the, the, the beginning days of spring break. I got to preach for him at his church, give him a, a, a bit of a breather. He doesn't get quite as many Sundays off as, as I do, and so uh, we're able to do that. And I just tell you that because uh, while we were there, uh, after I had gotten done, a man from his church came up to me and I uh, felt like he had a word from the Lord he wanted to share with me, and, uh, and it was, it was, it was, uh, there's a lot to it, but the thing I wanted you to know, he, he came up and he said he just had the word sensei uh, that, he, that he felt like he wanted to share with me, and, and that was true about me, and it's this Japanese word, you know, for more than a teacher or for like super awesome at martial arts, and so <laughs> I want you to know that like I was gone, but I came back with a new title. And uh, so you can, you can still call me pastor, but sensei works as well, you know. We'll go, we'll go with that too. So uh, in, all, in all seriousness, we are, uh, we are continuing on in this teaching series called Jesus. And uh, I've been loving this series, uh, just, just zeroing in on who he is, uh, looking more uh, at him than just, just about, or not looking just at what he did, but who he is, and uh, looking at how he lived his life, really uh, just, just asking some major questions. Is it possible that there are some things that are true about Jesus and how he lived that could and should be true about us and how we live as well? And then how do we, how do we get from, from here to there? And so what we've been doing in this series is really learning that like, we want to order our lives around three main ideas. Number one, to be with Jesus. Number two, to become like Jesus. And number three, to then do the kinds of things that Jesus did in the world, right? And, and so I, I just believe that this is what it means to follow Jesus, constructing the entirety of our lives around these three ideas, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did. And so we have spent quite a bit of time, some extensive time already looking at the first two, and today we make a pivot. Today we shift into looking at what it means to really do the kinds of things that Jesus did in this world. We're going to be kind of in this section all the way up until Easter Sunday, um, if you're taking notes today, I want you to catch this thought as we get started. The end goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is to do what Jesus did. The end goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is to do what Jesus did. Let me just explain it like this. Uh, th this is what I mean. How many of y'all know that like an electrician's, an electrician's apprentice, the goal is, uh, is to graduate and then become what? 
and a licensed electrician, right? So, so the goal isn't to just like, like spend time hanging around this, or this electrician that he's learning under. Uh, it isn't to just do some similar things. The goal is to graduate, get the license, and then start to do the kinds of things that electricians do, right? Uh, it's, it's very, very, very similar and true of doctors, those in the medical field. How many of y'all know that like doctors go through a very extensively long period of training? Undergrad, four years of undergrad, four years of med school, four years of residency, a couple years in their specialty to become what? To become a doctor so that they can practice medicine, right? So that they can start to do the kinds of things that doctors do, Listen to me, an apprentice of Jesus is no different. Like, we want to begin to be, we want to be people who do the kinds of things that Jesus did. And I know that, like, that thought right there can seem very overwhelming and it can seem very daunting. I know, I know for some people, we're like, hold on, what? Like, because you read about Jesus in the New Testament, you read about him in the Gospels, and you're going, like, I have to start to do that, yes, and I'm going to get into more of that as we go. Um, but I think, I think what I want to do is just start from, a, from a, like, an, like, an easier place. Like, I want to push out slowly into this today and and just begin with this thought if you're taking notes today doing what jesus did begins by learning to think like jesus thought okay so so yeah this is a big deal and yes we want to start to do the things that jesus did in this world but but to do that like we have to begin to think like jesus thought okay one of the best ways for you to begin to do the kinds of things that jesus did is to think differently about things than than most people think about things like, how many of y'all know that, like, Jesus doesn't think about things the same way that other people think about things, right? Jesus doesn't think about disease and illness the same way other people think about disease and illness. Am I right? Jesus doesn't think about cancer the same way other people think about cancer. Jesus doesn't think about the news. He doesn't think about the current events the way everybody else or the way other people think about those things. Jesus has a different perspective on the matter, Right? And so, and so one of the, the, the most important parts of our apprenticeship to Jesus, of following him, is going is to is be to begin to, to think like he thinks, to see things the way he sees things. And, uh, and so a huge part of our apprenticeship to Jesus is to, is, is to think differently. Right? And the Apostle Paul gives us some encouragement that this is even possible. Look at what he says to the church in Corinth in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, but we have the mind of Christ. That's, that's kind of a big deal. We have the mind of Christ. Okay, so you have, like, your ability to think about things in the natural and, and through you know, your flesh. You can certainly think like that all you want. But the Bible says that, like, we have the mind of Christ, meaning we have the ability to have his perspective. We have the ability to look at things in the natural and think differently about them and to see a different possibility because we have the mind of Christ. Paul goes on, he talks to the church in Colossae in in Colossians 3, and he says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So Paul is just writing to to, to, to these early Christians, and he's saying, "Hey, hey, listen, listen, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Like, focus your attention, your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Everybody, I just want you to say this after. I want you just to declare, my mind is set. Go ahead. My mind is set. Say it one more time. My mind is set. We set our minds on things that last. As followers of Jesus, we set our, th- our mind on, on things that are eternal, on things that matter to God instead of on things that are temporary, instead of on things that, that just do not last. 
How many of you know how difficult this can be as we're all trying to navigate the very crazy, very challenging, very painful world that we live in? How many of you know that like, the reality of the world we live in right now and the context of your life and the challenges you're facing can make it very difficult to set your mind on things above? Am I right? Like the things on earth pull our attention down, pull our mind down to where we're fixated and focused on the things that we're facing, the things that are around us. There is just so much fear, so much anxiety, so much tension that we see as we look outward. So often this is true when we look inward as well, am I right? And so this is what I believe if you're taking notes today. Followers of Jesus are meant to respond differently to the issues of the day. Listen, followers of Jesus are meant to respond differently to the issues of the day. The hope we have in Jesus should allow us and enable us to think differently, to see differently, and ultimately to respond differently to the issues of the day. And I just, I just think that like too many of us, maybe in here, but too many of us who are followers of Jesus are just reacting the same, not different, the same. How many of you would agree that over the past 24 months, our world has been dominated by some very challenging, fear-driven headlines the last couple of years? Am I right? It goes back to March of 2020, two years ago this month, when a little thing called the coronavirus, you know, sort of broke out into our world. Do you remember when it was just called the coronavirus, by the way? Do you remember that? Early on, it was just called coronavirus. In fact, someone would have like a, a cough or a sniffle, and you'd be like, hey, did you catch, did you get the, 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 the Rona, is what you'd say. Did you get the Rona? Remember that? It was just kind of almost like humorous. We talk about it in sort of a, a funny way. And then it, then it changed. It started to become COVID-19. It was no longer intriguing or funny. It was scary because it was spreading all over the world and people were dying and jobs were vanishing and businesses were, be shutting, were, were shutting down and we were told to stay at home. And like, yeah, this isn't as, as funny as it was, right? And then there was this global shortage of toilet paper. Do you remember stocking up? Like, is there anything more terrifying than not having toilet paper, right? That's apparently the message that the world, that the world uh, was sending at the time. People fighting. Do you remember seeing some of those videos on social media? People fighting over, like, the last package of toilet paper on the, you'd go, like, businesses, like, like were giving, you know, for takeout, you know, restaurants, they were giving, like, away, like, a ro- you get a roll of toilet paper with whatever meal you bought, like, through DoorDash or whatever, like, I mean, just ridiculous stuff that, like, you never would have thought you'd ever experience in this life. Social media was a joke, if you remember, people getting angry with people over different views on the virus, as if they were actually an, an expert on the subject matter. You remember that? Like, like, I don't think you know as much as you think you know. It just was, it was like, where's the humility in, in anyone when it comes to this thing? And just when those headlines were rocking our world, it seemed like things went up a notch, and we were dealing with the radical racial tensions that, uh, that happened the summer of 2020 uh, and really continue to this day. And after months and months of painful and negative headlines, it seemed like we were about to have a break. I remember like last summer, it was like, you know, COVID is leaving. And then 30 minutes later, COVID's back because there's like a variant of some sort, you know. We're just like, oh, I thought, I thought we were coming to the end of all of this. And then, you know, there's, there's been those little things like politics and war and more politics and more war and inflation and gas prices and food prices. And the list just goes on and on and on and on and on. And there have been so many negative headlines that it makes everything feel negative, Right? 
Does it feel to you like anxiety is in the air and that it's not going away anytime soon? When you look out and you see around you, and maybe you look inward too, does it seem like anxiety is in the air? Like there's a lot of tension, there's a lot of fear. It's much of the reason why I believe followers of Jesus are meant to respond differently to the issues of the day because of what we see around us in the headlines. In 1997, one of the most influential leadership books of all time was released. It was a book written by uh, Edwin Friedman called A Failure of Nerve. Maybe some of you have heard that. Uh, if you've had any kind of experience uh, with leadership in, in uh, uh, your places of, of business, or, or this is a very famous book on leadership, A Failure of Nerve. Friedman, as some of you may know, he was a, a Jewish rabbi and a family therapist who, as a family therapist, famously developed the family systems theory, which was enormously uh, groundbreaking, enormously impactful. So Friedman begins to develop notoriety, and, uh, and so this family th systems theory that he developed, uh, as he starts to, to develop uh, you know, some notoriety, he begins to apply this to different channels of culture, like leadership, like government, like religion, and, uh, and it just takes him into a whole new world of influence so again, this book is written in 1997, mind you, right? This is, uh, that's 25, right? 25 years ago. Friedman argues in his book that the West is built around what he calls the myth of progress, if you're taking notes, which he describes in his book as a faith, as a, a pseudo-religious faith that believes human history is moving towards a utopian society or at least a better future. Okay? This, is, this, is, this is a the myth of progress. He says, in contrast to the myth of progress, most ancient and still most Eastern societies today think of history as far more cyclical, like seasons. So there's a season of peace. There's a season of progress. There's seasons of struggle. There's seasons of conflict, right? Interestingly, Friedman said that when you look at just the hard data, again, 25 years ago, he said the West is actually progressing toward a better future in two ways, two distinct ways. First, economically, and second, technologically. So economically, meaning that more people have more money, or at least a far better standard of living today than ever before in human history, okay? And then technologically, in terms of science and medical breakthrough, uh, those are at an all-time high in terms of, what, of where we currently are at in human history, and it's wonderful. We're grateful for it. It's awesome. So he says, like, we're progressing toward a better future in terms of economics and, and technological advances, but based on the data, again, Friedman, uh, Friedman would also argue that the West is regressing both emotionally and socially 25 years ago. A recent Pew survey from, well, it's not that recent, 2018, again, before the pandemic, it found that 39% of Americans were more anxious than they were a year ago prior to the pandemic. The stats on mental health in general are through the roof. Antidepressants and other SSRIs are a multi-billion dollar industry, as many of you know. Treating chronic depression, anxiety, fear, and other challenges people are facing, all sorts of personality disorders are on the rise not to mention the relational issues people are experiencing, which they go on to talk about in this survey, that those who identify with having a secure relational uh, attachment are down by 25%, which they assume is due to widespread divorce. Things like marriage and family and sexuality and even gender are all up in the air. 
And it does feel to me, and I think it might feel the same to you, like life as we know it is falling apart. And so again, in his book, Friedman identified a five-step self-perpetuating cycle of anxiety by which the West is regressing into a downward spiral. And I want to show this to you here, uh, Friedman's five-step cycle of anxiety. He says the first, the first step in this cycle is what is called reactivity. Reactivity. And this is where people constantly react to the external events and stimuli of life with, the, uh, with internal uh, anxiety, fear, anger, outrage, jealousy, whatever it is. The 24-hour news cycle certainly doesn't help. And it thrives off of reactivity, if you didn't notice. Uh, this is what generates hits, which in turn drives up advertising revenue. And so reactivity is a big piece uh, in terms of, of, uh, of media and how it, how it functions and how it survives. Um, so as a result, the media outlets, they make money off of our anxiety. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, and, and they make money off of our addiction to our phones and our devices, too. Think about how much media is designed to feed the outrage monster and increase our anxiety. So he talks about the cycle of anxiety and says, like, number one, first step to like keep the cycle going is reactivity. Strong, emotionally based reactions to whatever happens. So this can be true, like in your family unit. You know, uh, you know, you guys get some news. Your kid does something they shouldn't do, and there is like a strong reaction, right? It's, it's like driven out of your emotion. But the same is true in culture. As he began to apply this to other other channels, the same is true in government. The same can be true in other areas. It's it's the cycle of anxiety. So reactivity. The second one he, he talks about uh, in this step is called the herd instinct. The herd instinct. So for all the talk about how individualistic we are, which we talk about that a lot around here, and, and which is true, uh, because of our culture being sucked into reactivity, most of us follow the crowd more than we think we do. And then devolve into a kind of mob mentality about whatever the issue is. And so there's a reaction, right, that drives and, and, and perpetuates anxiety. And then we got to find people who think like us. So then, then we're looking for, we're looking, it's like tribalism. We're looking for people who think like us, believe like us. And, and he, it says it, it, he says that it, it then uh, leads to this third phase in the cycle of anxiety called blame displacement. Blame displacement. So instead of, in, instead of uh, examining and searching out the underlying causes, creating toxicity, uh, he says we focus on the symptoms, viewing them in isolation. Rather than taking a proactive approach that examines our ability to affect change in areas over which we have a responsibility, we retreat into a perpetual victim status, blaming others and external forces. As, as blame is then thrown around, a cultural paralysis sets in, he says. A suffocating fear of offending creates gridlock, which prevents any chance of change, which leads to the fourth phase that he says, and he calls the quick fix mentality. The quick fix mentality. This is where the hedonism and instant gratification of Western culture in general creates in all of us a low threshold for pain. A low threshold for pain. Which keeps us from what the writers of the Bible call perseverance, by the way. Like, like you wonder why it's difficult for you to persevere in difficult situations? It's because, it's because many of us have just fallen victim to, you know, really a cultural narrative where we just want quick fixes. We want quick fixes. We want the silver bullet. Quick, simple, easy solutions 
most of them like external or political. Like we can fix things in our, going on in our life, things affects, affecting us. Most, most of the quick fixes we assume are going to be external things or political things. If they would just get this done in Washington, if we could just get this person in office, like things would shift and things would change. Quick, simple, easy solutions to the long-term, complex, hard problems that are certainly external, no doubt, but that are first internal and spiritual, he says. So yeah, they're happening. But like we fail to look internal and realize that some of these things, man, they, they, they begin internally and they are spiritual things that we need to look at. And so then this leads to the fifth, the fifth phase in terms of perpetuating the cycle of anxiety. He, he, he calls poorly differentiated leadership and this is basically where the f- previous four have all conspired to produce an environment that works against leaders or a- at least against the types of leaders that have the capacity to break the cycle of anxiety. Friedman says, and you know this if you have any experience with leadership, at I- at really at any level, that you just can't lead well in an environment of reactivity anger, blame shifting, low emotional resist, re, uh, resilience, desire for instant gratification, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So as the saying goes, we end up getting the leaders that we deserve. Like that's, that's what happens. And so it, it, we've cr- we created an environment that's very difficult to, to lead in. And, and so then the cycle just starts over, reactivity to uh, um, the herd instinct, to, to blame shifting, to the quick fix mentality. And then we just have leaders who like, who can't, do anything other than just perpetuate this cycle. Friedman says this in his book. If if you're taking notes, you want to look at this. He says, the only way to stop this self-perpetuating cycle is to inject right into the middle of it a non-anxious presence. The only way to stop this self-perpetuating cycle is to inject right into the middle of it a non-anxious presence. And so what Friedman means is, uh, by non-anxious, is he, he's talking about a, a well-differentiated leader. Not a poorly differentiated leader, but a well-differentiated leader. Meaning, a leader who, who does not get caught up in the emotion of the other person. Someone who can stay calm by not embodying the anxiety that, ex- that exists around them. It's the idea that your anxiety, your fear, your panic, it doesn't have to become mine. This, this is what he means. Like, like there's got some, to be someone who can step into this cycle of anxiety as a non-anxious presence to disrupt it so that it, 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 it keeps it from perpetuating. A non-anxious presence is calm, at peace, wise, compassionate, loving, empathetic, but yet firm and able to stop the cycle of anxiety from perpetuating. I read the Gospels. I read a lot about Jesus, and I don't know about you, but it sure seems to me like Jesus is a non-anxious presence, is he not? Like, I love, I love, like, looking at Jesus. I love when I, when I see him in the Gospels, I, I, I just, he, he, he's like never rattled. He's always under control. And it seems like a lot of the reason why that is true is because he just has a different perspective. He sees things differently than most people do. Am I right? Like, like Jesus, when he, when he is faced with, with, with people who are sick, like he's not rattled. He's not nervous because he has a different perspective on the situation, right? 
Jesus, Jesus just looks at things differently than, than most. And I, I, I realize, you know, that, that sometimes we can struggle with this because, like, yeah, that's Jesus, and he's got, like, that ace up his sleeve that, like, makes him God, and so he knows that he can kind of trump the situations of life. But, but you got to understand that when Jesus came to this world, he, he really set aside the God card. Like, like, like the, the Scripture teaches that, that he, he fully poured himself out, meaning that, that uh that, that while he was fully God and fully man, he chose to not use, um, he chose to not use the fact that he was God uh, to, to, to just get him through life. Instead, he chose to rely upon the Holy Spirit. Like the same way you and I are told to rely upon the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus was able to step into situations as a non-anxious presence. This is what I want you to catch if, if you're taking notes today. I think that what our world needs most is for followers of Jesus to step into this cultural cycle of anxiety the same way Jesus did as a non-anxious presence in the world. I think this is what our church needs, quite honestly. I think this is what your family needs. I think this is what your workplace needs. I think this is what our city needs. I think this is what our country needs. I think this is what our world needs. People who are strong, at peace, compassionate, wise, firm for sure, and able to break the cycle of anxiety that is deeply hurting our society as a whole. Much easier said than done, am I right? Much easier said than done. I think the problem is that many of us tend to experience life like everybody else. We're followers of Jesus, and yet we tend to experience life much like everybody else, and we find ourselves then just as anxious as the next person. Now, I wanna just pause for a minute, and I want you just to understand and, and hear my heart here. This is not an easy topic to teach on, and it's not meant to bring any type of shame upon you. If you're someone in here today, like, and you deal with you know, varying levels of anxiety, there's so much compassion that I have for that. Like, I have found myself uh, at, at different seasons and moments, like, battling, like, 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 varying levels of anxiety as well. Like, so it's not to heap shame. What I'm hoping the message today can do is, 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 is inspire you to believe that there's another way to live life than how maybe you've been living it. And, and uh, I do realize that there is... Uh, you know, there is value and benefit in, um, you know, those who are getting, you know, medical help for things like anxiety. I, I just want you to know that there's a difference between that type of anxiety and I think just, just sort of looking at life and reacting uh, the way everybody else does. There, there's a difference. And I just think as Christians, like, we are, we are meant, we are wired to look at life and the, si the situations and seasons that we're in and respond differently. And, 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 you know, the best example we have of that is by looking at Jesus and seeing that he, he does that, and we want to embody that as well. And so the question is, like, how do I, how do I become a non-anxious presence? And is that even possible, right? How do I, how do I become a non-anxious presence? Let's just start here, if you're taking notes today. Let's start right here. You can't always change your circumstances, but you can change your perspective, right? You can't always change your circumstances, but you can change your perspective. The reality is that there's a lot of hard stuff going on in the world. Probably true in your life as well. And you can't change everything that's going on in the world, and you can't change everything that's going on in your life, but the good news is that with God's help, you can change your perspective. You can begin to see it differently than maybe you have been seeing it. There's the story in Mark's gospel that I want to I get to today in Mark chapter 4, and, and really it's a story all about fear and anxiety. It, 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 it's a story all about just, 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 just reacting and, and, and becoming very fearful, anxious, panicked, 
as a result, really, of a very difficult circumstance the disciples find themselves in. And I want to just start by reading a few verses of the story to you, and we'll, we'll kind of we'll walk through it together. But Mark chapter 4, uh, verse 35, it says, That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. In verse 37 says, A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Gotta love that. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? You know what's interesting to me about this story, and, and, and we'll pick it up the rest of it in a second. What's interesting to me about this story is if you look at Matthew's account of the same story, like that whole day, there was a lot of pretty amazing stuff going on. Like, like, like that same day, you know, Jesus miraculously heals Peter's uh, mother-in-law who had a, a very ser- serious fever. Do you remember that? Jesus casts demons out of many people. The Bible says that everyone who came to him that was sick, he healed all of them that day. That same day. And so the disciples, they have been witness to this. They have seen this. They've witnessed Jesus do some unbelievable things. Don't you think that the things that they have seen would have the ability to like build their faith in some pretty profound ways? And, I, and I'm sure it did. Like, like if you and I saw these things, like it would probably blow our mind. It would probably build our faith I would imagine that they're riding a pretty serious spiritual high at the time they board this boat to cross the Sea of Galilee that day. I mean, think about it, right? Their faith has been incredibly built up, miracle after miracle after miracle, as they have just witnessed firsthand these amazing things that Jesus has done. And so what seems odd to me, if I'm just honest, what seems odd to me is in this story, the fear and anxiety that the disciples seem to have as they come and wake Jesus up. Like, don't you care? Jesus, like, what are you doing? Like, that's, that's what's really happening here. Like, what are you doing? Get up. Like, do you care if we die? Do you care if we drown? Think about how many times maybe you've had a similar thought towards Jesus, towards God. You ever had, you ever had something similar, similar to that run through your mind? Don't you, don't you care what I'm going through? Don't you care what I'm experiencing right now? Like, like do you not care at all? Like, how many times do I have to pray? Like, is it the sixth prayer that finally takes? Like, like God, do you, do you not care at all what I'm going through? That's a very similar thought and emotion to what the disciples are going through on this boat on the Sea of Galilee. I thought you were faithful. I thought you were trustworthy. Many of us can relate. After all they had seen Jesus do to them in this moment, none of what they had seen before mattered, okay? Because for them, it was all about, what have you done for me lately? And so they weren't actually, in this story, they weren't leaning upon and pulling from what they had just witnessed Jesus do. They, they, they instead, like the headline had changed. The, 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 the headline news of their life had shifted, and now they're like, we're about to die. And so even though they had all this faith as they boarded the boat, like that faith is gone. That faith is like nowhere to be found because the headline has shifted. They're not living in a place of peace any longer. They're living in a, in, in, in a storm. And I think that that's true for a lot of us because we come to church and, and, and we, we live our faith in Jesus out in, in ways where we do see God do amazing things. I know that Josh just shared last week about some answers to prayer even in our church. We've seen God move and do amazing things. 
But it's one thing to see God move like that and, and, and to have your faith built in times of peace and in times where your life isn't really going through serious trouble of, of any kind than, than it is when you're walking through a serious storm in your life. How many of you all have found that in the difficult seasons, faith and belief in God is very difficult sometimes to, to, to find, at least in the same way it was when, when things were going well? The headline for their life had changed in an instant, and they went from having all of this confidence to now having fear and anxiety as they become convinced that they're about to die. Uh, can, can you relate to that? Can you relate to the headline of your life shifting on a dime just like the disciples? All this faith, all this belief, and then what? Wait, hold on. I wasn't planning on going through this. I didn't expect to walk through that. And all of this fear, all this anxiety, all this disappointment, can you relate to the headline of their life changing in a moment? If you're taking notes, look at this thought. For most of us, if we are honest, our trust in God on an emotional level rises and falls with the circumstances of our life, the size of the wind or the waves. At least on an emotional level. I think that, I think that for most of us, like we walk through difficult times and, and you know, I, I think that most people, when they do that, they, they, don't, they don't abandon belief altogether. But on an emotional level, things begin to change. It's like, it's like, I thought you were, but you're evidently not. I thought you were going to come through, but you're evidently not. Listen to me. Maturity in Jesus, which is my job and Pastor Josh's job and like our elders' job to help, help form into you. Maturity in Jesus is about rising above the circumstances to a more steady place to where you're not riding the roller coaster of the ups and the downs of faith. But the reality is, is just that most of us aren't that mature yet, right? And I'm not sitting here saying, like, I'm, 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 I'm great either. Like, I, most of us just aren't that mature yet, if we want to be honest. We're a lot like the disciples, which isn't bad company, but we're a lot like the disciples where our faith is robust and built up at times. And then when we crash up against the challenges of life, so does our faith. So the disciples get on this boat in Mark 4, and they, Jesus says, let's go over to the other side. They're not to the other side, and a storm comes upon them, and they are filled with fear and anxiety. Look at this thought. I think it has become all too common to question the faithfulness of God and as a result forfeit our peace when something unexpected happens in the space that exists between where you were and where he promised to take you. I want to just read that one more time, okay? It has become all too common to question the faithfulness of God as, and as a result forfeit our peace when something unexpected happens in the space that exists between where you were on the shore and where he promised to take you to the other side. Remember what Jesus promised in this story. He said, hey, let's go to the other side. Did Jesus say, let's go to the middle of the sea and die? Did he say that? Did he say, hey, let's all just get on a boat and like see what happens? No. Jesus told the disciples, he says, hey, let's get on the boat. Let's go over to the other side. And I think that this is the perspective that we're meant to have as we face challenges and difficult circumstances of life. It's not about what is happening to me right now in this moment. It's about what he said. It's not about necessarily the, like, like the circumstance in general. It's about what did he say? What does the word of God teach? 
What is true about his character? What is true about his nature? That is what is being, that, that's, that's what we need to pull out of this story. That it's not about like, like the storm that I'm in, in right now or the fact that I'm facing some things I'd rather not face. It's about what did he say? What did he say? And you know what's interesting to me about the story, and, and I, I don't know if you noticed this too, but like why does nobody else on the boat have a proper perspective? Like they all were there, you know? Like they all were there that day watching Jesus do the miraculous. How come there's not even one person with the proper perspective? How come everybody in the boat is afraid that they're about to die? <laughs> like, right? Like, where's the one? I, I'm, like, I'm looking for one who's like, hey, what are you guys? Like, this is Jesus. Did you not see what he just did today? Like, we're good. We're fine. It's going to be all right. Verse 39, the story continues, and it just says this. It says, he got up, Jesus, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Again, it's the maturity issue right there, right? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this man? Like, who, like we thought he was just an awesome teacher. We thought he was a miracle worker, but like, who is this man? I want to know who this man is. So Jesus is awoken out of his sleep in the middle of a storm, does Jesus seem nervous to you? Does Jesus seem rattled to you? No, of course not. Why? Because he has a different perspective. He has a different perspective. Bill Johnson says this about this story. He says, I have this sense that he, Jesus, was sleeping because the world he dwells in has no storms. I have this sense that he was sleeping because the world he dwells in has no storms. Jesus just has a different perspective on storms. He doesn't see them the same way we see them. This teaching, like I heard years ago, Bill said something similar to this effect, that like any storm that Jesus is sleeping through is an invitation for you to do the same. In, in any storm that Jesus is at peace and asleep in is, is an invitation for you and I to do the exact same thing. He's not nervous, and because he's not nervous, like, we don't have to be either. He's not, like, he's not rattled. He, he's not sitting there going, I don't know what to do. There is this perfect peace because he is, in, he is connected to his father, and he just knows that his life is surrendered anyway, and that his, his father has good thoughts for him. And, and so there is just this peace that he lives with that can't be rattled even by the storms that he finds himself in. I'll tell you, like, like three years ago this month, actually three years ago yesterday, I got back from Israel with my brother, and, and uh, one of the most emotional experiences for me was on the Sea of Galilee as we're sitting there and just realizing that it was these waves, wind like this, that, that, like, that was rebuked by Jesus and that just that listened to the, to the voice of God and stopped and just began to pray into that in my own life, storms that I was facing things, challenges that I, that I was going through, issues in our, both of our lives, in our churches, and just saying, God, like, like, I believe, I believe that you did then, what you did then, you can do now. Would you begin to speak to the storms, the wind, and the waves in our lives, and, and bring those things to peace? He's so good, and he is so faithful. Look at this thought. Peace is often the result of allowing ourselves to see things the way that Jesus does. What I mean by this is, like, if I had his perspective, then I'd probably have peace, right? Like, is that, is that true? Like, is that, a, is that a, too simple? Like, if I had his perspective, I'd probably have peace on the matter. 
And I'm not trying to like downplay or minimalize, patronize any of us like going through real deal life issues. But the reality is, is that I would probably have peace if I had his perspective. And that most of, most of the time, the reason why my peace is disrupted is because I'm looking through a different lens. I'm seeing it in the natural entirely, and I'm not using his perspective. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not taking advantage of the fact that like, I have the mind of Christ, and I can look at this differently. David writes in Psalm 94, he says, When anxiety was great within me, your consolation, your comfort, your encouragement brought joy to my soul. So, I want to try to kind of wrap this up as best as I can here. And, and just, I think by just addressing the question, how do I live as a non-anxious presence? Like, how do we do that? And again, again, no, no guilt, no shame in the room, but like, how do we even begin to do this? There's, there's two steps, and it's almost oversimplified, and I apologize for that. You just can't be overly exhaustive unless you want to sit for uh, a few hours. So, couple things that would just just really be beneficial. Number one is faith in Jesus. Like, have faith in Jesus. That sounds so incredibly basic, but I'm not talking about the modern Western heresy that if you follow Jesus, nothing bad will ever happen to you. Or, or if it does, that must mean that it's all part of God's master plan or Jesus's master plan for your life. I'm not talking about that faith in that. Listen to me, Christianity is not primarily a plan of protection against the brokenness of the world, but a relationship with Christ in the midst of it. That's what Christianity is. It's not a chance to, life. it's not an opportunity to just avoid the brokenness that, 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 that is in this world and that we experience. It is a relationship with Jesus in the midst of the brokenness. So I just tell you today, very simply, have faith in Jesus. Just have faith in Jesus. Have faith that he is good have faith that he is with you. Whatever comes your way, uh, what you want or what you don't want, just have faith in Jesus. Like, like, like how do you live as a non-anxious presence? Like, have faith in Jesus, true faith in Jesus. That he's bigger, that he's greater, that he's stronger, that he's better than everything you're experiencing and facing in life, and that should produce in you like some level of peace. Am I right? And then, and then the second thing I would tell you, like, if you want to live as a non-anxious presence, is, is to release your need for control. Like, like control is honestly, it's, it's, it's like, it, it's, it's uh, what we do to sort of cope with anxiety, like control. Control. Control always manifests itself when we create the terms and conditions in which we will obey God. So, always will manifest itself. Have you ever created the terms and conditions in terms of your obedience to the Lord? Have you ever, have you ever like been like, anything, Lord, except for that? Like, I'll go as far, except I just won't go that far. Like, have you ever, have you ever just, just had those moments of, of like boldness and surrender only to find like, hey, I didn't really mean like everything, you know? And so control begins to manifest in our life when we start to create the terms and conditions, you know, related to our obedience to Jesus I just want to tell you that we have to come to this place where our joy and our peace doesn't rise and fall based on what does or does not happen to us. We have to come to that place as followers of Jesus where your joy, your peace, you know, like, like as, a, as a Jesus follower, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't fluctuate. It doesn't, it doesn't move up or down based on what happens to you or based on what doesn't happen to you in your life. There is this steadiness. There is this calmness. 
There is this ability to step into the, 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 the cycle of anxiety in this world and be a non-anxious presence so that you can disrupt it. And, and uh, man, like, and just, and just uh, point people to, like, like, the true way of life. It's interesting to note the level at which humans, religious or secular, ancient or modern, Western or Eastern, crave control as a way to manage fear. It's really interesting to think about that. We want to control our life. We want to control our fate. We want to control our story to make sure nothing bad happens as a coping mechanism to really deal with our anxiety. But whenever you attempt to control something that is not yours to control, you reveal a deep spiritual problem within yourself. Did you know that? That whenever you attempt to control something that is not yours to control, you reveal a deep spiritual problem within yourself. The good news about that is that it's completely fixable. That like, it because, just because it's been that way doesn't mean it has to stay that way. But what happens is, like, is like when we try to control things, we're not even meant to control. It reveals that we, we, we don't really trust God like we need to and like we should. It means that our lives aren't really surrendered to him the way that we, we talk about it and the way we say it is. And so we want to be people who surrender our lives to him in a deep way. We want to, we want to say, so, 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 so like honestly, right now, do you, do you find yourself like, like, like too often like, like trying to control things that you're not, you're not supposed to control? And even like, does that, re, does, that re, does that say anything to you? Does that speak anything to you today? Does it reveal to you that there's something maybe broken spiritually that has to be addressed? Like, I, like it's, not, it's not worth it to keep living this way. Like, like, like Jesus, I want to just lay my life down before you. I want to I turn my eyes towards you. I, wanna, I want you to be everything in me that matters. And like, like the areas that I've just manhandled control and put my hands on the wheel and said, like, I'm going to take it from here. Like, I just I repent of that. I, I, I apologize for that. I want to live a life of surrender for you. And, and why? Well, because, because it's, it's what we're called to do as Christians, but, but the byproduct of that is it enables us to live as a non-anxious presence in the world, which is a signpost to people of another way and another kingdom that is, that is far better than, than the way of life that we're in right now on planet Earth. Look at this with me today, like, and, and you guys can come on up, um, worship team. Jesus is always working to grow and mature us into the kind of people who have become a non-anxious presence as a result of a deep trust in God on one hand and a release of this deep human urge and need to control our life on the other. He's always looking to, to, to grow and mature us into the kind of people who have become a non-anxious presence as a result of deep faith in Jesus and the surrender of our need for control in our life. The Old Testament, there's a, there's a pretty remarkable story in Numbers chapter 12 where Moses is leading the Hebrew people. He has already brought them out of captivity and slavery in Egypt, and they are now like wanderers, nomads in the desert. There is a promise of God that he will take them from where they were to a new place, uh, the promised land. And they find themselves right there in the middle. 
They find themselves right there in the again, similar to the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, in, in that space that exists between where they were and where they're headed, where God has promised to take them. And so what Moses does is he sends out 12 spies into the land of Canaan. They have come to the edge of the promised land, and now they're, they're but, but it's occupied. It's occupied by other, by, other, by other people, and it's the land that God has given Israel. And so uh, he, Moses sends out 12 spies to go, to go scout the land, to bring back a report, to tell, them, to tell the people you know, what it's like, what they're about to face as they cross into the, the land of Canaan. And so uh, they go and they do that, right? And, and the Bible says the 12 spies come back and 10 have one report and two have a different report. The two are men that we know, Joshua and Caleb. And they come back with a report. It says in verse 30 that, that Caleb silenced the people before Moses. And he said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. And what he is doing is he is silencing the voice of those who have said, like, it's impossible. It's, it's, we can't do this. Like, don't you understand? Like, 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 the people there are huge. They're giants. Like, they're, they're, their military is, is way more advanced. There, there's no way that we could or should do this. We should, we should stay where we are. Verse 31, this, this is what they said. It says, but the men who had gone up with him, the ten, they said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from uh, the Nephilim. They said, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So, so what's interesting to me about this story is that it, it's the exact same situation. Ten people, two entirely different perspectives. Like ten people go in to scout the land, ten come back with one perspective, two come back with another perspective. All of the spies are looking at the same situation. They're all reading the same data but they just don't all see it the same way, do they? And what I think I see in Caleb and Joshua in this story is I see two men who have faith in God, for sure. And I see two men who have released the control of their life. And as a result, they can see, they can see things differently than other people can. As a result of having deep faith in God and releasing control, it's enabled Caleb and Joshua to have a different perspective on life to see things from a different vantage point than the other 10. The other 10, they're not, they're, not, they're not living out of this place of great faith. They're not living out of, certainly out of this great place of, of releasing control. And so they just can't see, see things the way that God sees them. And so the story goes that like they end up not possessing the land. They end up having to go wander for another 40 years in the desert until that generation has died. And so the Bible says when, when, when Caleb was like in his 80s, he's like, he finally gets to, gets, to, gets to go into the promised land. Look at this thought with me today. As you follow Jesus, do not allow your life to become defined by someone else's perspective. Don't do it. Don't let yourself and your life become defined by someone else's vantage point, someone else's perspective. Yeah, but don't you see how big don't you see how impossible? But don't you see how that's never going to happen? Don't you see the odds? Listen to me. 
as you follow Jesus, don't let your life become defined by someone else's perspective on the matter. I don't care what it is. I don't care what you're facing. The Bible tells us that we have the mind of Christ. We have the ability to think the way that he thinks, to, to actually shift our thinking on, on, on the matter, on the situations of life, and to ask the question, Jesus, what do you, what do you think about this? Do you know that like, like that's one of the most dominant prayers in my life is that simple prayer right, right there? Like, what do you think about this? Jesus is like, what do you think about this? It's one of the most consistent prayers in my life is that little prayer right there. I say it all the time. I say it all the time. We get, we, we get all kinds of different things that happen that we aren't planning on, just like you, that we weren't planning on facing, we're planning on going through. But I have a choice on how I react and how I respond to those things. Am I gonna be a man who thinks the way Jesus thinks? Who, 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 or at least tries, like, like who at least tries and says, man, God, I just want your perspective. I want to see things the way you see things. I don't want to get all wound up. I don't want to get all fearful. I don't want to get all driven by, you know, emotions that I was never supposed to have in the first place. I want to have the mind of Christ. I want to see it the way you see it. And so I just say like a, a real simple prayer. It's just like, Jesus, what do you think about this? Jesus, what do you think about this? So I don't know what you're dealing with right now. I don't know what your life looks like. I don't know what your you know, marriage is like. I don't know what your relationship with your kids is like. I don't know, I don't know what your finances look like. I don't know what the challenges are. I, I don't know what anxiety looks like. I don't know what it is that's creating inner turmoil in you. I don't know what the disappointment looks like. But I want to tell you, one of the best things you can do is just to settle your spirit before the Lord and just say, Jesus, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Because I want to, th I want to start to think about this the way you think about this. And watch, watch as peace starts to fill you up. Watch as hope starts to fill you up. Watch as you start to see things differently than most people see things. And then, and then you start to be able to offer that same perspective to others. It's the way this works. You may not be able to change what you're facing, but you can change how you look at what you're facing. So instead of setting our minds on earthly things, back to the beginning, right? We set our minds on things above. We change our perspective. And this allows us to then respond differently, to live like Jesus as a non-anxious presence in the world. Would you stand with me this morning as we get ready to close out? Because we have faith in Jesus and because we've released control, we can live in this world as a non-anxious presence just like Jesus did. And don't you think our world needs that? Don't you think your family needs someone to step into the cycle of anxiety as a non-anxious presence? Someone who's calm and collected, full of peace, full of confidence, with a different, different vantage point of what the outcome could be. Don't you think our city needs that? Don't you think our country needs that? People, men of God, who would step into the challenges of the day as a non-anxious presence. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? If you're here today and you would just say, Pastor Jordan, there's a lot going on in terms of anxiety in my life. Like, I hear what you're saying, but I just don't even know. And this is like an area like of, of real, like, like real battle, like real struggle, maybe even real shame. And you just want some, you just want some encouragement, potentially even some freedom today over that. You want to start to, to, to really take on the mind of Christ and shift your perspective. Could I just see you today? Could I just see your hands? I mean, well, there's, there's, no, there's no embarrassment in this place. If this is something that's been like, like, like truly holding you captive, something that you've been dealing with more than you think is normal, more than you think, like, like people deal with anxiety, but you're going like, this is maybe at a level that's beyond normal. Can I just see, yeah. Father, right now, I just pray. 
In Jesus' name, that you would just release freedom in this house right now. God, I, I, I thank you that you are faithful to walk with us. The Psalm 23 says that, that uh, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Psalm 23 tells us that you prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. So even in the midst of the difficult times, even in the midst of, of things not going the way we want, you offer us peace. You prepare a table for us right in those moments. And so I ask God that you would start to do that for every person with her hand raised this morning under the sound of my voice, oh God. Bring peace, supernatural peace that drives out fear, that drives out confusion, that drives out thoughts that don't come from you, oh God. I pray a renewal of the mind in Jesus' name, according to Romans 12. A renewal of the mind right now. Thoughts that only come from you. I pray for just a, an invasion of, of the thoughts of heaven, the thoughts and ideas of heaven in, in, in and through us in Jesus' name. Never the same. Oh God, would you establish us in this place as a non-anxious presence, as people who are followers of Jesus, who respond differently to the headline news, who respond differently to the issues of the day than everybody else. Let us shine that light. Let us be a non-anxious presence to this world. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.